This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. This is Beth Silvers. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. for joining us. Today, we are going to return to the two major ongoing wars in the world, in Gaza and in Ukraine. We're also going to wrap that very difficult conversation in two sources of happiness and joy in our lives, E. Jean Carroll and Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. So we hope that you will stay for Outside of Politics as well. Also, we did want to say to our Eagle-eared. Is that a thing? I know we can be eagle-eyed, but I'm I'm making eagle ear too. Our eagle-eared listeners who did notice that, yes, we have turned up the tempo just a bit. We didn't think y'all noticed. We just wanted to get it a little faster over time. But y'all picked up on it immediately. We just wanted to, to pick it up a little bit, make it a little more high energy. We're very happy with it. We're not going to continue to, <laughs> to slowly gaslight you guys. <laughs> so don't worry. It's not going to continue to get faster. But if you noticed... Good work. We did, in fact, turn up the tempo of the theme song. Some of you also caught a very brief mention that Sarah made to us reading Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville. And a few of you went out and purchased that book and then realized, oh, that's a big book. And it is. (laughs) It is. So we will have a schedule for you soon. But what we really want you to know today is that this is going to be a slow book club. Slow launch, too. (laughs) It's a slow launch. (laughs) Maybe got out a little over our skis on launching it without meaning to launch it. The point is, we are returning ourselves to some big texts about what are we all doing here. It's presidential year. We want to take a different approach to the news. It's a presidential year in which we are going to really strain the balance of power among the executive, judicial, and legislative branches of government. So we just wanted to get back to some basic texts and foundational documents, and Democracy in America is one of those. We're going to spend like six months with it. We are not going to read every single word of that gigantic book that you bought. So take heart. Stay tuned. Thank you for being A-plus students and ready. But we we will come to you with a plan that is an achievable plan, we promise. Yeah, our plan is to use one particularly abridged version. You can still keep the ones if you've already ordered it, but we have the link to the, the version we're reading in the show notes. And at the end of February, we're going to do part one. So you've got some time got plenty of weeks in front of us to stretch out and soak it up. You don't want to gobble down big pieces of this at once. That's what I've already learned, making my way through part one. Um, I'm really excited about it. There are definitely pieces of this book where you're like, holy mess, are you sure this was written a couple hundred years ago? Because it's so relevant. And we're really looking forward to taking this journey with our premium community, which is where we're going to have the conversations around the different parts of the book. So if you'd like to join us, you can check out Patreon or Apple Podcast subscription and get your copy of Democracy in America. In case you wondered if we take a different approach to the news, our hard sell to join our premium community is reading a 184-year-old book to talk about the foundational principles on which this country was founded. There you go. I think that is the right approach as far as I'm concerned. The lost constituency of our ancestors. Thank you very much. Okay. Next up, we're going to talk about E. Jean Carroll. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 
for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Beth, I know. But as an ethical and caring person, you have a lot of trouble with punitive systems. I would like to make the case to you that it is both ethical and I would I'm I'm willing to go as far as say endorsed by the Holy Spirit that we can issue punitive judgments with money. Money is a great way to punish people as evidenced by the news we got on Friday that a jury has decided to punish Donald Trump for continuing to defame E. Jean Carroll by awarding her an $83.3 million judgment. $83.3 million. That does not include the $5 million she got in May. So he's going to owe her $88.8 million. I do not typically like punishing measures, but some part of my consciousness must agree with you that it's better when it's money Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I did smile when I saw this number. And my brain has, do you know the song 76 Trombones from the Music Man? My brain has been just doing, every time I read it, a little $83.3 million. (laughs) Like there's a little, there's a little party energy around this number because This is not money that will bankrupt him. He will go out and fundraise. He will take people's $25 at a time to to pay any portion of this that ever actually gets paid. But I do appreciate a jury standing up and saying, but if you had just zipped it, like just zip your mouth, just don't talk. Keep her name out of your mouth and you can be done with this. And And he won't. He won't. And I thought it was a strong case from Roberta Kaplan, E. Jean Carroll's attorney, who, did you know, argued the gay marriage case before the Supreme Court? She is an incredibly accomplished attorney that E. Jean Carroll got herself. Yes. What a legal legacy there. You just get on it, Roberta. I love that for you. But a strong case to say, if you don't make it huge, he's going to keep doing this. It has to be enough that he will shut up. And I do believe this is enough and that he will shut up. What do you think? I think he will try hard to shut up. We will see if he can sustain it. He will try his hardest. Unclear to me if he is really in control of himself enough to sustain that for the rest of his life. Well, he wasn't at the trial, and that's what made the jury so mad. Oh, he acted like such a baby at the trial. I mean, in so many ways, he provoked this verdict with his own behavior in every way. And here's the thing. Yeah, there are people who don't like Donald Trump behind a lot of this. Because there are lots of people who don't like Donald Trump and who do want to be punitive. I don't think President Biden has anything to do with this or anyone associated with the campaign. I'm not making that accusation. But the Bulwark has reported extensively on the fact that George Conway, who is now making his livelihood as an anti-Trump thinker and commentator, and who was previously married to Kellyanne Conway, who made a lot of her livelihood as Trump's campaign manager and then advisor to him in the White House, George Conway suggested to E. Jean Carroll at a party that she sue him. Amazing. And it doesn't matter. Your motivation for taking someone to court is not part of what the jury examines. And I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist as a juror to think, I bet some people don't like Donald Trump and want to make trouble for him. Still, you are constrained by what's happening in the courtroom. They knew that, and they still observed his behavior, the way he taunted the judge, the way he spoke out of turn, the way he walked out like a baby in the midst of the closing arguments. Like, they saw with their own eyes what was going on here and rendered this verdict to send a message. And that's a jury of normal, regular people, not political operatives. Well, and I just feel like, you know who else people were out to get? Barack Obama. Everybody. No drama Obama. Do you know why he got that name? Because he looked at his staff and everyone in his life and said, we will not 
give them a thing. We will not give them a scandal or a misstep. We will not do that because I know that people are looking for the tiniest thing. That's what a person of character does. They said, absolutely, I took on enormous responsibility. And with that responsibility and power comes a chorus of critics who are waiting with bated breath for anything I do to tear my priorities and policies apart so I won't give them anything. This is so far from that universe where you just can't shut up. To me, this is like such a strong case when you have people in your life that are talking about, well, he's a good president. And I'm, I didn't like the tweets. Well, it wasn't as simple as the tweets. He cannot stop even when there are millions of dollars on the line. He cannot stop attacking everyday citizens with the enormous power. I mean, we're talking about this jury that had to be anonymous because of the fears of threats and physical danger that come when you just participate in a system that requires some responsibility from this man for his actions. Is this who we want as president of the United States, someone who just can't keep his mouth shut? It's also just satisfying, too, because it doesn't matter if he becomes president, he still has to pay this money. (laughs) Every single person with any public profile has someone who's coming after them. And a lot of people who don't have a public profile feel that someone in their lives maybe legitimately is out to get them. That's part of why he has had such broad appeal, right? Like he uses Mm -hmm. that sense of, oh, I'm being a victim. But if there is any case for saying there has to be a limit to that, it's this one. This is so stupid of him. Even if he had absolute assurance within his own consciousness that he did not do what she's saying he did. After a $5 million verdict had decided this issue, all he had to do was not talk about it anymore. And he couldn't do it. But I think your point is the point to talk with our friends and family about. The judge advised this jury not to tell anyone they served on it because the way that he uses people is to turn us all into weapons against each other. And he's done it so successfully over and over. You might think, why does she deserve millions of dollars for having him talk about her? Because when he talks about someone, they start to need security. When he Mm -hmm. talks about someone, they can't go on the internet or a lot of places anymore without being assaulted from every angle. That is the through line to January 6th. He says to people, I want you to do this. And they interpret that in the harshest, most sometimes violent terms possible. And it works. And that kind of control over a set of people, however that has come to be psychologically, is something that I also don't want to empower again. He does not bring out the best in people, I think, is um, the understatement of the century. And then to watch the the right-wing media turn this into, they're going to come for you, too. You're going to have to pay millions of dollars because someone falsely accuses you. It's just so outrageous. Like, how many times are y'all going to fall for the same playbook? It happened to me. It'll happen to you. No, it doesn't. I'm sorry. Are you leading an insurrection? Did you run for president? Like, What is this even about? The fact that people see themselves in this man who is such a unique figure, not just in American politics, but in American life. Like, he is a lot of things, but he is not an everyman. And I don't understand why this sense of, like, if if, if they come for him, I guess because the argument is if they'll come for somebody as powerful and unique as Donald Trump, they'll come for you. But, like, no, he's different. You know what you would do if if a judge told you to keep your mouth shut? You'd keep your mouth shut because you don't have— million dollars and an ego the size of a Macy's Day parade balloon that tells you that you never do anything wrong. And in the framework of him not bringing out the best in people, he does not bring out the best in me. And I feel myself getting all heated about it. And that is not the posture that I want to be in. I think the salient points are people do identify with this in him for good reason or bad. But identifying with him about false accusations or being bullied or being pursued, someone having a vendetta against you. That is not the job description for the president of the United States. And being defined by those things does not lead anybody to a good life. So even if you really sympathize with him here, if you allowed that to define the entirety of your character and all of your interactions and the way you do your work, that is a sad way to live. And I don't experience a whole lot of people doing that. 
you know, and I, I just don't think that that's the person we want to elevate to this position of responsibility. Well, and the salient piece of this to me is that, look, it's working. He's being held responsible in a court of law. Like, no, he's not going to jail, although I do not think that is off the table. But just the sense of like, he did this thing. A jury of his peers said, you did the thing. And so now you're going to be punished. And he is going to have to pay this money. Yes, there will be appeals. Yes, it will take a while. He is absolutely paying the $5 million at this point, I would say. And he's definitely going to, even if it gets reduced on appeal, pay some piece of this big verdict in the follow-up case. That feels good to me. It just feels like a good, healthy reminder of like, he is a human being. He is a real human being. Like, I think he becomes so outsized, especially as the presidential race heats up. Like, I thought this was a good, healthy reminder. Like, no, these court cases are real and the consequences are going to be real and they are going to continue because he's a human being and he has to put himself, you know, sort of through the process just like anybody else. And there are unique components of this. But at the end of the day, like the system is working. And that felt really good to me. Still does. I think it's just another reminder of who he really is, too. When mm-hmm. you read the transcripts of him saying to the judge, like, this is a sham. You're so biased, whatever. And the judge then says, I might have to throw you out, but I'd bet you'd love that. And Trump is like, I would love it. I would love it. Like, it's just a reminder of the immaturity that it, you cannot mythologize someone who behaves in such a petty way. I mean, you can and people do. But if you want to kind of come back to ground about him, these trials are another place where he makes it really clear who he is. Yep. And who he is is not a person of sufficient character and maturity and groundedness to handle the very serious issues that the president of the United States has to handle all day, every day. And that's what we're going to talk about next. We're going to talk about the escalating situation in the Middle East. We're going to talk about the conflict in Gaza. We're going to talk about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura. 
frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We have been paying such close attention and having continued conversation about the expanding conflict in the Middle East over the weekend. Over the weekend, there was an attack near the Jordan-Syrian border that killed three American soldiers. The attack was perpetrated by a pro-Iranian militia. President Biden has already said that there will be retaliation coming from the United States. You know, there are people in the Senate calling for swift and harsh retaliation. There are people advising that the United States scale back the attacks they've already been launching against the Houthis in the Red Sea. There are continued exchanges in Iraq. There was conflict between Iran and Pakistan. Like, it is getting bigger. It is getting more complicated. And we wanted to take a minute to talk about that, as well as the ongoing war in Gaza and what we see as the role that has played in this expanding conflict and and what's going to happen next. The issue that stands out to me right now, because it is the issue that is closest to us, is the scope of American power in the region and how it can be exercised correctly. I think that you see as Iran expands its operations through proxies and directly the limitations of America's ability to determine what happens next here. I think too often, especially in social media discussion about the Israel-Hamas war, there is a perception that President Biden could just snap his fingers and call the whole thing off. And it is clear that the interests in this region are so varied, they're so entrenched in some ways and flexible in others because there's a lot of just take advantage of an opportunity as it opens up here by terrorist groups, that what the United States does is important, but it will not determine everything or even perhaps the most critical pieces of what happens next in this region. And then in terms of the White House's ability to respond to these unfolding events that are that are even hard to stay current on because it's happening so rapidly, yeah. You have a very serious group of senators, people of real gravitas who are not new to the institution, who've been thinking about war and power for a long time, saying, I think that the president might be overreaching in terms of what he's ordered. And then you have people who favor a very muscular foreign policy, some of them quite serious and and others not, who are demanding that the president directly engage Iran right now in response to this drone attack and figuring out what's legal and what's ethical and what's wise and what has consensus support and what can be articulated to the American people. Here's why we're endangering our people to do this. That is such an unenviable position and such a thorny mess of issues. And so that's kind of where I'm putting my attention, just trying to understand what options does the administration even have right now and what would be the effect of each of those options? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about American influence, I was so struck by reporting that our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, met with the Chinese foreign minister in Thailand because they want China to come in and try to influence Tehran because China has enormous influence in the region. I think that speaks to both wisdom and concern. You know, like, I think it is smart to say we can't treat China like an enemy all the time because they have influence around the world that they've worked very hard to build. And we might need some of that influence right now. And it's scary to me that we have to depend on the government of China to come in and play a a wise role in trying to tamp down conflict in the region 
you know, as we continue with this war, I think we're, we're over 100 days. I think what is becoming abundantly clear to me is no matter how much I trust the leadership in the White House and I want to see American leadership in the region, the leadership in Israel is just fundamentally flawed. I think I hoped desperately that there would be some sort of moment where Netanyahu rose to the occasion, even though I think that he is a terrible leader, but this is just not shown to be true. I think it is just such an epic failure. And I think you see that in the protests and the disruptions of cabinet meetings and the families of the hostages coming in and saying, what are you doing? This idea that eliminating Hamas was going to free the hostages has just not shown to be true. I mean, there was reporting in the New York Times where you had Israeli defense ministers saying those are fundamentally in conflict with one another. I mean, they've only freed one hostage through rescue, through military action. The rest have been negotiated releases. All these tunnels remain intact. Like, this is not working. And then I think they have lost so much support and backup from the world community because I don't think anybody sees Israelis' response as proportionate. Now, there's a bigger conversation about whether it's genocide um, happening at the UN and at other levels. But it doesn't matter where you fall on that issue. I don't think anybody sees this as wise or proportionate or increasing the security of the Israeli people at this point. We've talked before about how I don't see how anybody wins a modern war. I don't see how a modern war produces anything other than a war of attrition. And you just wait to see who wears out first. I think the difficulty for Israel is that there are so many factions within its leadership that there isn't a clarity of purpose. It's multiple purposes unfolding at one time. And by and large, an Israeli society that is against the perpetration of blanket violence against civilians in Gaza. And so at the same time, this came up in the, the UN World Court on South Africa's genocide complaint. At the same time that you have upwards of 300,000 civilian homes being damaged or destroyed and somewhere around 25,000 civilian deaths, you have Israeli troops having to work on the provision of food and water and trying to build and repair hospitals. And how long are you going to do that, right? Every overreach militarily has a corresponding requirement of the Israeli state to come in and provide some sort of repair or some sort of facilitation of humanitarian assistance. I think that what is so gut-wrenching is you just try to understand what's happening here. You know, there are a lot of people in Gaza, 2 million Palestinians, 180 babies born every day, even as this conflict is unfolding. It's so many people. It's so many people in this tiny space, and they are all moving around this tiny space because Egypt will not allow people out. They're not going to go into Israel. It's not safe to go into Lebanon, perhaps. Like, there, you just have these people moving around this very small area to try to stay alive. That cannot further any reasonable objective of anybody, of Hamas, of Israel, of Iran. Who benefits from that? So I'm so grateful that Qatar has been willing to negotiate with parties and, and that there is some expression of confidence as we're recording that we might be getting closer to a ceasefire not because I think Israel has no right to defend itself, but because I think that its objectives are not being accomplished either. This situation is terrible for everyone. Yeah, as I think about it, I just realize that it is so heartbreakingly awful for the people of Gaza. I mean, you have 1% of the population that's been killed I read a statistic that there was one toilet for every 220 people, only 13 hospitals to serve those millions of people. There was a statistic I read in The Economist. They were talking about the sort of scale you use to define 
hunger. And four out of the five people around the world who are at the worst risk of death through starvation live in Gaza. It's like 577,000 people. I mean, we're looking at death from the fallout of the destruction that could exceed the 26,000 people that have been killed in these strikes over the course of this year. And you see that and you think, who benefits? But I think the hard reality for this region of the world is a lot of people. A lot of places in the Middle East, be it the Houthis that are now getting valuable distraction from the fact that the people who they are leading are unhappy, be it, you know, people in Iran who are unhappy with their leadership, but who can sort of deflect their anger at the treatment of the Palestinians. You know, that I think so many of the, the strongman leaders in this area of the world, of which there are many, this is not a place rife with democracy, have to walk this line between using the suffering of the Palestinians to distract from their own abuses and oppression and being careful not to fuel that flame too much that it overtakes them. Because it is this energy source. The suffering of the Palestinians is this energy source. I think it's true in left-wing politics in this sort of interesting way. And it's like, you can really, I think, see it laid so bare in a moment like this because no one has a plan for these people. The Israelis, the PLO, Hamas, that wouldn't even open up their own tunnels to shelter the people being blanketed with bombs and missile strikes. Like, I just, it feels like this population and their suffering fuels so much in this very complicated way across sort of Iran, Iraq, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, not to mention all these non-state actors that are now disrupting global commerce streams with drones, we can all see that these people gain from a solution by ending this suffering. But I'm not sure it's abundantly clear in the geopolitical politics of the region how a two-state solution serves so many of these players in the region. Yeah, I think something about the status quo always works or it wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. I think you learn everything you need to know about Hamas by understanding that they have stored food and water for their own fighters while the people for whom they are supposed to be responsible and leading and fighting this fight are bartering and begging for animal food to feed their children so that they don't starve. I think that tells you everything you need to know about Hamas. Or even the corruption at the Egyptian border, where there is aid and food, and it's getting sold on the black market in Egypt and not being sent over into Gaza. And you have questions about the ability of the United Nations to be an Mm -hmm. honest provider of aid when there are accusations that 12 U.N. workers actually participated in the October 7th violence in Israel, and not in a passive way. One person was accused of kidnapping. Another was involved in the violence in the kibbutz that killed 97 people. I mean, these are serious, crushing accusations for the legitimacy of the United Nations. And certainly there are people who benefit from that all over the world. There are Bad, bad faith actors who benefit from that all over the world. The question that I have, Sarah, to your point about the exploitation of the Palestinian suffering within the region, because I agree that there's an energy source, and a lot of that energy source is just being able to blame the West for everything, which helps with recruiting and helps with relationship building among groups who hate America and helps with propaganda campaigns and Uh, simultaneously weakens the West because those propaganda campaigns now so quickly spread in the form of, like, well-designed Instagram graphics about imperial feminism and whatnot. I mean, there are just there are so many ways in which the level of sophistication of these groups in in building their message has become hard to see as it's happening, but it is happening. My question is how far these groups can go. And how far they want to go. You know, I read that during the last ceasefire negotiated here, 
the attacks on American military installations in the region effectively stopped during that ceasefire. I don't think that all of these groups, for all of their ideology and for all of their funding from Iran and and who knows who else, can afford to go full-scale conflict directly engaging the United States and its allies. And so I just don't know where that range is. Where's the zone where everyone's interests are in calming the situation? I'll tell you one thing. I'm confident it's not with the advice of Senator Cotton with striking Iran and creating even more violence in the region. I do not envy President Biden trying to decide how to calibrate a response to these American deaths in Jordan. Because I think any more violence in the region will just fuel more violence in the region. Because I do think there are so many actors, even like the Houthis, What do they have to lose? All that they've shown is that they gain strength by disproportionate military responses to their attacks, be it in the, you know, Yemen Civil War or on the Red Sea. They're no weaker. What are we doing? Then what are we trying to accomplish? And I think that's the problem. No one will answer that question. What are we trying to accomplish for the Palestinian people? Is it Israeli rule over Gaza? I don't think that's the answer. But no one else seems to have an answer. Hamas, the PLO, the UN, the United States, we have to have an answer. We have to have something that we are striving for. And that I don't know if we've ever had an answer in that region. I was so struck by Thomas Friedman on Ezra Klein's show talking about in India when there was the Mumbai attacks. The Indian government and the leadership there made a very conscious decision that I do not believe would be replicated under the leadership of Modi to not strike back, to say, no, a violent response will strip us of any power we have in this situation. I think that's a decision that the United States could have made on September 12th. We didn't, but we could have. I feel like in this part of the world, we've tried the other way. (laughs) Repeatedly. We've tried. It didn't work. And it doesn't work. And it's not working now. And so I'm just so hungry for leadership from that region. I don't think it can come from the West. I think the West has its own place in which it can exhibit leadership. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But it has to come from this area of the world. And I think that's very difficult for a lot of different reasons because of corruption. I mean, it's not like we didn't have the Arab Spring where people were calling out for this and we didn't exactly get this you know, new revolutionary era filled with democracy and freedom and liberty. And so I, I don't I don't know the answer. And, you know, Thomas Friedman has this great moment in the podcast where he said, it doesn't matter what people say in English about the conflicts in the Middle East. It matters what they say in their own language. And that's what we need. That's what the world needs. That's particularly what this area of the world needs is real leadership. And it sure as hell isn't going to come from Benjamin Netanyahu. What I think is interesting about engaging China on this is that for all of its might and for all of the ways in which China is is threatening, Mm -hmm. it has avoided military engagement for a long time. I was just reading a summary of a report this morning about how truly difficult it would be for China to invade Taiwan. It would be very, very hard. That would be a massive military exercise. And the report said that China has not engaged in that kind of military activity for 70 years. Wow. And so hopefully there is something wise and peaceful that China could bring to this conflict. And it's hard when you have to depend on people that you are not in relationship with in a way that involves a lot of depending on each other and feeling reliable and supportive and like we share the same objectives. But I think there is a place for China in this conversation, and I'm glad the administration is is willing to invite them to that conversation. I think I may turn out to be deadly wrong about that, but when you have really limited and all bad options, I get it. It's not like we haven't done it before. It's not like we didn't depend on the USSR during World War II, <laughs> right? And so I think, you know, transitioning to the other part of the world that we wanted to 
talk about. We're in a very different situation now with Russia and its invasion of Ukraine. I think this one is so difficult to talk about, Beth. I read stories about Ukraine. They are all hard. They are all deeply disconcerting. I think the Ukrainians are tired. I think they are depleted and they are tired. You know, they still are trying to stamp out their own corruption in their government. They're having really, really difficult conversations around recruitment efforts because their military is depleted. They don't have enough ammunition. They don't have enough weapons. They are frustrated and they are feeling abandoned by America, rightly so, and by Europe. And Russia is just this behemoth compared to them that, you know, as an oppressive government can just use people who don't have a lot of freedom, liberty, or choice to fuel this this conflict. And that seems to be what they're doing. I think constantly about the analysis I heard on an Economist podcast that for Russia, people are the cheapest asset and for Ukraine, they are the most expensive. And that that kind of asymmetry is really hard to overcome. I did, to your point about what's the goal for Israel, feel really encouraged by an interview I heard with Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss. He spoke with Tim Miller of The Bulwark. This is my second mention of them in this episode because I think they're doing some really interesting work right now. And he had the clearest articulation of what the goals are going to be. He said, I think if you conceive of Ukrainian victory in this war as sustained and secure access to the Black Sea of sovereignty and self-determination and its ability to join the West, which is really its core aspiration— and the inability of Russia through both security guarantees and Ukraine's own strength to credibly threaten them again, those are achievable aims. And I thought, you know, I don't feel like I've heard anyone say, here's what we're trying to do. Because you get sort of stuck in, well, do you give them Crimea? Do you just, like, write Crimea off? What about the Donbass? Like, you get right to the territory. But instead, if you kind of say, like, bigger picture, what are the goals here? That does feel clarifying to me on sort of what the next steps are, and especially for the American public to understand, like, what is the return on investment for the United States by equipping Ukraine? And when you think about that return, as this congressman does, as vastly increasing the NATO border with Russia, and this is gross for me to think about and hard but if you're trying to make the case to everybody who find different things appealing, the weapons are manufactured here. It gives our military an opportunity to see how some of the weapons that we haven't used yet perform in conflict. In this new type of conflict, too. Exactly. With all the drones and all of this, yeah. And so whatever stance you have on the merits of assisting Ukraine. And, and look, President Zelensky has made this argument. It is in America's self-interest to continue to arm Ukraine. I find that ethically very hard, you know? I find it very, very hard. But I also find it persuasive as a matter of policy. And I do feel like this conflict could have a resolution if everyone came to the table and wanted it to. Yeah, I thought his just basic math was pretty convincing of like, this isn't even that much money and we get so much in return. But it's not about the money. They're fighting about this in the budget cycle, but it's not about the money. It's about the winning political argument around isolationism. And I do not understand how you want to be hard on China and bomb the living shit out of Iran, but you're sitting there saying we shouldn't do anything in Ukraine. I have trouble with South Africa coming before the U.N. court with accusations of genocide while ignoring the fact that Russians speak as if Ukraine doesn't exist, kidnaps their children, and drops bombs on civilians. But South Africa has a closer relationship with Russia, so I don't see them before the court on that. And I'm not saying anybody has pure ethical arguments on the international stage about any of this. Of course we don't. But to me, I think what I'm, I'm just realizing is with these conflicts, living through them in this way, is that it is so easy to get stuck in time, to get stuck in time where the conflict started and forget that they are living beasts and they change. I think that's why I'm so still sort of turned off by many of the protests around the war in Gaza and the sort of the genocidal language and the ceasefire language because it feels 
stuck in time to me. And I'm really trying to watch my own thoughts and say, like, don't get stuck in how you felt when it started. That's not what it is now. And you don't make your best arguments to end it when you get stuck in how it started. That's what bothers me. You know, like, if you want to address the suffering of the people in Gaza, then don't get stuck in this black and white argument about ceasefire now. Address the reality on the ground. Pick apart the failed leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu. Because when you argue in such a black and white, reductive way, you strengthen his case. You give people space to agree with him and not to call him out as the terrible leader that he is. And I think that's true for Ukraine. Like, it does not serve anyone to ignore that they do have trouble with corruption, that they are taking harsh recruitment efforts, because what it says is they're desperate and we need to help them. (laughs) You know, like, if we don't want Russia to learn that this is doable, that they can resurrect the USSR, then stop playing this for political point and acknowledge the reality. And I think acknowledging some of the more difficult realities around the U.S. military-industrial complex shouldn't be ignored. Good job, Jake Auchincloss, for acknowledging the base sort of calculus. That's okay. We should talk about that, too. And if you are listening to this conversation and feeling kind of lost, and like it is so far removed from where you are in your life, that's correct also. It becomes clear to me all the time that we do not contribute anything to the globe by getting so incensed about what's happening in the globe that we make our piece of it more tense, more anxiety-ridden, more conflict-filled. I don't think we are called to fight with each other over what's happening in Gaza. I think we are called to try to understand it the best we can, especially if we have expertise, to contribute that expertise, to acknowledge how hard it is for our leaders to figure out what their constraints and opportunities are. But I don't think that it makes anything better for anyone on Earth when we take our little section of Earth and turn up the temperature as high as we can on something that is remote from us in so many ways. And I get that this is not as remote for a lot of people as it is for me. And so it's going to be different, right? Depending on your connection to this area of the world, again, your expertise, your job, your family connections, your ethnicity, your opportunity, your faith, like there's so many things. But it is okay to have moments where you say, this is remote for me and I can't do this right now because I just got one of those life-changing phone calls, you know, that someone in my sphere has had a medical emergency or has passed away or is contending with a divorce or something that calls for my care and attention right here. That is okay, too. And I think that is our best work of making the big globe better by caring for our sphere of it in the ways that we are most empowered and capable of doing. Yeah, and I think at the same time, the suffering wears on all of us. And there is suffering in other parts of the globe. Besides Gaza, there is enormous suffering in Sudan right now. There is enormous suffering in Haiti that continues. And I think holding all that and trying to think, I'm still a citizen in one of the world's most powerful nations. What does that mean? Well, for me, I'm going to call. I don't think it'll matter, but I'm going to call my representative and say I support funding for Ukraine. I'm going to continue to pay attention to these situations, even when they question my own positions and my own understanding of the region and the conflict within it. I think it's hard to hold all that, but I think it weighs on us whether we do or not. I think it's impossible to compartmentalize and ignore. And so that's why I value this space with you, Beth, that we are allowed to do this with this community and pay attention to these things and talk about these things because I think it matters deeply. It matters deeply. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Beth, we had a hard conversation about conflict and suffering around the world. And as is her way, Taylor Swift came around and said, can I help you? Can I lighten your load? Can me and my boyfriend enact a real life romantic comedy for all of you? Would that make you feel better? To which I say, Taylor, sweetheart, it would. And I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I do like the memes that call her everyone's emotional support celebrity. (laughs) Yes, that is what she is. So if you, for some reason, live under some sort of rock or in a cave and didn't know, the Kansas City Chiefs will face off the San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl in Las Vegas on February 11th. There were the playoff games this weekend, and Travis Kelsey and the Kansas City Chiefs pulled off a pretty surprising win over the... Baltimore Ravens, they celebrated on the field. Taylor came down. So many cameras. God bless all those camera people. There were kisses. There were love yous. There were hey, sweeties. Just a big old celebration. And I just feel bigger and better and brighter because of it. I thought it was fun in following the coverage from the field to see all of the people who it's almost like you could tell by their expression that they were recognizing, oh, I'm about to be in a million photographs. <laughs> like, just the bystanders to this, like, whoa. I, you know, just like that disconcerting feeling of, I I just was in this photo with them kissing or hugging or whatever on the field. It made me laugh a lot. 
I just don't think we've had a celebrity couple like this in a long time. Like, even if you think about, let's say, like, Brad and Angelina, like, they weren't spanning this sort of area of pop culture in the way that Travis and Taylor are, right? Like, even if you have two actors and actresses that we're all caught up with, which we were, like, definitely with Brad and Jen and then Brad and Angelina. And even, like, I can't even think of another one, like, on that level recently. Just this sense of, like, it's not just two actors and actresses that we all love and want to get together because they're private in their private lives because of their jobs and the way they sort of move around in the world. And I think if she was still with someone else, we'd get a little bit of that. It's just something about, like, the public nature of him playing these games every dang week and her being there. Like, it's just, it's huge, guys. It's huge. I think the difference is that professionally, we don't know either of them as characters. We know them as right. them. Right. That's so, so true. Even That's so even the biggest celebrity couples, our, our relationship is usually to a character or to a set of characters or to that film or this TV show. We feel like, for, you know, reasons that are both justified and incomplete, that we know just these people, that when Taylor performs, it's Taylor. And when yep. she writes her songs, they're her songs. And yep. she tells us that. This is my music about my life. Yes. And that when he goes to play football, that's just him playing football, you know? Right. And when he talks about being in a gazillion commercials, that's just him talking about his life goals and his priorities. Like, we're getting them. Or his podcast with his brother. Yes. I think that all of that, like, amps up the investment in them because we do feel closer to them than even Brad and Angelina. Well, and it just feels so good because they're both slain. I think that's what this, like, if he was a retired football player, I think we'd have some of this. But the fact that he's, like, going to the Super Bowl and his girlfriend is Time's person of the dang year, like, this is wild. I don't know if we've ever had anything like this, truly. Well, and the other thing is that football is the most pervasive part of American culture now. SNL had such a funny cold open this weekend where everybody was just lamenting that football season is almost over because this is what the most people watch together on live television. Like, it is the shared experience. It is the thing we have left as Americans that a lot of people are into in real time. And it's a competition, you know, and he's racking up all of these records. Like, it's perfectly orchestrated One of our friends said that she feels sometimes like this is maybe evidence that we're in a simulation. And I don't think she's off base about that because it is so fine-tuned to capture attention. Well, I don't feel like it's a simulation. I feel like it's a reward. What, What we've been through over the last few years, the universe was like, you know what you guys need? This. And the universe was right. Because again, what do we love more than football? Singing. We love to sing. We love to sing together. There's all that science on like, I I feel like the science probably between singing in a group and watching a sport event as a group and what happens when you're in those spaces is probably not that far apart. And so (laughs) what do we have? We have these two leaders of group delight and joy coming together. And I was like, I was ready for some kissing, Beth. I'd missed it. And you got it. I got it. I went the other, like, last weekend because she keeps going to the games and we get them coming in and out. But I was like, I need some, I need some more Taylor and Travis. I mean, I know she's going to the games and I'm very excited about her outfits, but, like, I need a little bit more. I need some kissing. And we got it. So much hugging, so much kissing. Oh, God. Put it in my veins. Put it in my veins. Well, the other piece that I want to focus on, in addition to football being so ubiquitous, is that her music is so ubiquitous. She's not like a a breakout indie star or something. No. She's a genre-bending pop star. So, I mean, both of them just at the very top of of their industries. And, And he, not just a football player, but who's done SNL, who does all this commercial work, who does the podcast, it's bananas that these two have found each other. But they seem so happy. So I'm so happy. They seem so happy. I do want him to go to the Grammys because I need some red carpet. I need a little red carpet energy. Like, I think we've got plenty of the football fashion. I think Jason Kelsey is so funny when he talks about the game fits and he's like, I don't play dress up. I play football. Ugh, I love Jason Kelsey. 
so funny. But I'm ready for that. I'm ready for a little red carpet energy. I need to see them, like, dressed up together. I'm very excited about that. If he is not at the Grammys, I'm going to be sad. I'm just going to say that right now. He's only been to the one concert since they've been together, too. And she's been to a lot of football games. And so I'm ready to kind of even some of that out. But I will say, for me, getting wrapped up in this, beyond just that it's fun and I love my group texts that are devoted to it and all the things— It's just a good reminder to, like, want what I have, you know, because you watch how fun it is to have a boyfriend and you forget that you do have a boyfriend. You happen to be (laughs) married to him, but he is still your boyfriend. You know what I mean? There's a life coach, Brooke Castillo, who talks about how important it is to want what you already have, to, like, actively, purposefully want what you already have. And so I watched the two of them and then I just remember, like, God, I wanted to be married to Chad Silver so bad, and now I am, and I still want that, and it's so fun. When I saw her little uh, Trav friendship bracelet that was gold, Instagram served me a million ads for the company that makes those, so I got myself a little silver Chad friendship bracelet, and I wear it, and it just inspires me. It just reminds me, like, I, too, have a boyfriend who I love and am proud of and am so delighted to be with, and I just think it's a good, healthy fascination for me. Yeah, it's so funny. I'm, like, from the other angle. Like, I don't want to be where she is. Like, I loved having a boyfriend. I, like, guess, super, super fun. I'm just ready for her to join me over here in the long-term companionship camp. That is so deeply rewarding. I need the songs. I'm ready for the wife era songs. I want Taylor to write me a song about a fight. I'm excited about it. Let's do this. I think it'll be incredible. You know, like, my favorite song of all time is Brandy Carlisle's Party of One, because I just think when you get a songwriter who can, like, really just get in there with the depths of, like, a long-term committed relationship, oh, it's some good stuff. I mean, we got a, we got a while to go there with them. I get that. But, like, I just, I love it. I think they're so well-matched, and it just brings me so much joy. Because yeah. there is a lot of joy in being well-matched. I don't want to rush them. I want them to have so much fun. I want them to live their best lives. Clearly, they are. We, we have billions of dollars and fame and the ability to do absolutely anything that you want to do. Hard to imagine you not living your best life in that. And also world. just being real pretty the whole time you're doing it. And I am so happy that she has this because otherwise, having a billion dollars and all this fame is hard. I'm broken for her about these deep fakes like Ugh. pornographic deep fakes of her on Twitter. 47 million views of this just horror show. And I'm glad that she has the power and the stamina to push back against all of that. And I know she will be fine. And also this person who keeps getting arrested outside of her house for stalking her. I'm just glad I that mean. she's got the joy side of being super famous is what I'm saying. Because the rest of it sounds awful. Well, since we're just, you know, we're just wrapped up in her life and creating all these storylines, I've created a couple around that myself. One, I believe that she should own X when this is all over. I can envision some sort of legal battle where by the end of it, she owns it and just like, says like, we're done here. Thank you. Bye. Um, I'm like into that. I'm creating a little fan fiction in my head. Yeah, I think it's it's so terrible. You know, the only slightly redeeming aspect of this is that she does have the power and obviously has shown the will in previous situations in her life to say, and not today, Satan, not today. I'm going to do what I can with the power and resources I have to shut this down. And I hope she does. And, you know, with the stalker, like I just, I told my husband this morning, I'm like, not to like get in the like fully gendered fairy tale situation here, but I would hate for that man to get crossways with Travis Kelsey. He is a very large human being. Like, just the idea that, like, it's just so scary to be that famous and have these, like, people with clear issues, like, clear, clear issues outside your damn house. Like, oh, my God. Well, I just, I appreciate her for bringing this kind of joy into my life. And I hope that Travis Kelsey is worthy of her and that she of him and that everyone continues to be very happy. They seem to have such a supportive group of friends. I know. I love it. I love so that for everybody. I want all of us to have our versions of this romantic comedy. Ugh, I love it so much. I love it. And him and his brother, when they saw each other on the field in the tears, I just even can't. I can't, Beth. I want to, but I can't. It is all well designed. If someone is doing a simulation. Good job. Give yourself a raise. Just with this portion of it. But yes, this portion is very well done. I have some complaints about the rest with this piece. (laughs) Bravo. Good job. Good work. 
Well, thank you for listening today. If you have found our different approach to the news helpful, we hope you'll share the show with someone. We hope you'll join us on our premium channels for our new Slow Book Club with Democracy in America. And we'll be back in your ears on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Katherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. The Pettins! Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Jen Ross. Sabrina Drago. Becca Dorval. Christina Quartararo. Shannon Frawley. Jessica Whitehead. Samantha Chalmers. The Family! The Adair Family. Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.